Hey, thanks for joining us again today. Carrying on in our Gospel of Luke series that we're doing, um, we are looking at a pretty incredible story here where Jesus heals a paralytic man. And so if you turn with me in the Gospel of Luke chapter 17, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 17 to 26, we're going to be taking a look at this story. There's a lot to dive into with it. So Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 26. If you're not sure where it is, in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. Please use it. Uh, so here's what it says. One day, Jesus was teaching, and, a, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way into the house because of the crowd, they went up on top of the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that we're going to see some, uh, maybe, Lord, just affirmations of things that we already know to be true about you. Uh, but, Lord, also some other things that will help deepen our faith and our understanding of your word. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen. So we're just going to dive right in. If we look at verse 17, I want to set the scene for what's taking place here. Now, in the Bible days, it lived a lot differently than we do here, especially if you're living in any kind of northern hemisphere where we have snow. In these Bible days, when you go inside your house, or sorry, in our days, when you go inside your house, typically you're going to close your door, and for a lot of people, they lock the doors. But in these days, um, these doors were not locked when they went inside. As a matter of fact, often they weren't even closed. Windows were typically open, and so then when Jesus is speaking in someone's home, uh, people are able to gather around the outside of the home because they can hear what's coming out the door and what's coming out, of course, of the window. And an open door meant that anyone could come in at any time. Everyone was welcome. They didn't even have to lock. And so a closed door meant that something was going on inside, uh, and that if you were to go inside, you were going to bring shame to yourself and to other people. Uh, so Jesus began to preach in this house. Doors are wide open. Anybody can come in at any time. And they did, including Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, Pharisees is something that you often hear about when you read through the scriptures. And the same thing is true of teachers of the law. But I'm not sure that any of us have a really, really full understanding of what these two groups of people are, who they are, what they're about. So let's talk about Pharisees for a moment. Pharisees means separated ones. They separate themselves from everything that they thought was unholy or thought could taint them in some way, moving them away from the love of God. And, uh, and so then they also thought that everyone was separated from the love of God except themselves. And so there was this purity law that they would lean into. Among the Pharisees, there were two schools of thought. And Jesus dealt with these guys on a very regular basis, and we'll talk about that later as we go through Luke. But there were two schools of thought based on the teachings of these two particular rabbis. One was Shammai, and the other one was Hillel. Now, Shammai called for a strict, unbending interpretation of the law, uh, in, and certainly on almost every single issue. Hillel, well, he was a little bit looser, a little bit more liberal application. Now, the Shammaiites wanted to outlaw all communication between Jews and Gentiles. The Hillelites looked a little bit more gracious approach 
and oppose such extreme exclusions. And so uh, it's important to note that, that the Pharisees were not evil intended. Uh, often, sometimes I think when we, when we read through the scriptures, we, we read about the Pharisees and immediately our thought is that they are just demanding an evil. The reality is, is that the, the Pharisees as a group had a deep desire to be committed to what was called the oral tradition and the law. Now, the, the law, of course, is the, is the books of Moses and, and, and the writings of the historical writings and the wisdom writings in the Old Testament. So it's the entirety of the Old Testament. The oral tradition were commentaries on the Old, on the, uh, Old Testament, and, and it was believed by Pharisees that they had almost like equal value. And so then they had the oral tradition and they had the written law or the written word talking about the Old Testament specifically. The Pharisees taught uh, the following doctrines. These were kind of intrinsic to who they were. God controls all things, but decisions made by individuals also affect life's course. Uh, and so then certainly taught the sovereignty of God, but that man's free will uh, altered man's course as well. Uh, they taught that there was a resurrection of the dead. And so they believed that, and actually that's recorded in Acts 23, verse 6 that there is an afterlife with appropriate reward and punishment on an individual basis. And the Messiah will set up his kingdom on earth. And the spiritual realm, including the existence of angels and demons, is real. And so these are the teachings of the Pharisees. I've actually heard someone say he was a messianic um, pastor. Um, he was a believer uh, and he was suggesting that Protestants nowadays, because of our strict holding to the Word of God, which is good, are like modern-day Pharisees. And so some, you could tell, are moving to a legalistic realm, which some Pharisees did, and, and others don't. And, and so it's the same is true for, uh, for us and for them. Now, interestingly enough, these two schools of thought, the Hillel and the Shammai, eventually there became such hostility between the two that they stopped communicating with each other and wouldn't even worship with each other uh, as we approach um, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then you had this group of people called the teachers of the law. Now another term used for them was the scribes. And the scribes were essentially lawyers as they interpreted and ruled on legal matters that were brought before them in the Sanhedrin. So they were also part of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like this Jewish Supreme Court. It's the ruling of, of things in the nation of Israel. But they had added several hundreds of their own traditions that were never part of the law of God, none of which were ever recorded in the scripture. And so, for example, uh, Jesus would challenge them with this, like Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus, right? So these are the two groups that we're talking about. They came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break bread, uh, break the tradition of the elders for which they do not, why do they not wash their feet in their hands before they eat? And, and, and so you have this indication here that there's the word and then there's the tradition of the elders. And in the tradition of the elders, they were trying to hold everybody to a standard of holy living that the scriptures didn't actually you know, offer any ruling on. And so it's very interesting that Jesus points and often rebukes self-righteous people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, by taking them back to the Word of God. He says in Matthew 19, verse 4, 
haven't you read? Now that's an indicting statement because when you're talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would have been really well versed in the scriptures. So haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and this is in Matthew 19 when they're talking about divorce and, and remarriage, and so Jesus is challenging these two schools of thought at the time, the Hillel and the Shammai, and he's challenging the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, haven't you read? In other words, you should probably know this already. Um, and so he's challenging them at their, at their root, at their foundation. And it also meant that, um, that they should have known much of what Jesus spoke and taught about because it was in this very scriptures that they had copied and studied um, that all spoke of him. Actually, as a matter of fact, he actually once said in John 5, verse 39 to 40, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Now, one addition, additional note that is uh, really important to take notice of is these Pharisees and teachers of the law is that they came from Galilee, they came from Judea and Jerusalem. Now, this is really interesting. So at the time, uh, they are in Capernaum, and, and so then you have Capernaum in Galilee, so that's to the north. And then immediately to the south, you have Samaria. Now, nobody would ever travel through Samaria, and so they go kind of around along the Jordan, and they come down into Judea, uh, which is underneath. It's in the southern part of Israel. And in Judea, you will find Jerusalem. And so it's interesting that you have Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. These are people that, um, like the teachers of the law from these locations, you need to start asking the question, like, why were they there? What was going on at the time? Could be suggested that there was a growing interest in this Nazarene who was teaching with authority, casting out demons, performing miracles. But you also need to ask, like, like if he's up there in Capernaum, how did they hear about it in Jerusalem? Well, if you look at the chronology of Jesus' life, you're going to consider what actually took place just before the cleansing of the leper in Matthew 8, 2 to 4, Mark 1, 40 to 45, and what we talked about last week in Luke chapter 5, verse 12 to 16. And this is where Jesus instructs the leper, according to the law of Leviticus, to go to Jerusalem, present himself to the priest. And so in doing so, this leper, who remember from last week, if you were checking, and if you haven't checked out last week's message, please just go ahead, go back and look at it. But the belief was that only God could cure a leper. And so this leper goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and talks about his healing. He presents himself to the high priest healed, uh, according to the book of Leviticus in terms of what the practice would be. So the high priest in Jerusalem would have heard about this Nazarene that healed him. And so it's presumed then that that there would be interest in what Jesus was doing, and so they likely sent some kind of delegation. Now, do we know that for sure? No, of course not. We weren't there. But the indication from the passage is that if he had to go present himself to the priest, and the priest had to declare him clean, he had to ask investigative questions as to how did this happen. He learns of this Nazarene in Capernaum and likely sends a delegation to figure out what's going on. And, and so 
as we continue on in the passage, that's verse 17, we're setting the stage. We have Jesus in Capernaum. There's people there uh, that are in this house. You have Pharisees and scribes, like the teachers of the law, that are coming from Judea. They're coming from Galilee. They're coming from Jerusalem. And they're all hanging out there. And now we're, we've got this scene set because these are people that are not necessarily in favor of Jesus. And so you've got these Pharisees, the teachers of the law, sitting there waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. In verses 18 and 19, we, we learn that there's this paralytic. We learn that he's got these friends that want to bring him to Jesus for healing. As a matter of fact, you know, I was curious, like how many friends were there? Like, you know, because I'm trying to picture this thing. And Mark actually tells us that there were four men who brought their sick friend to Jesus that day. And Jesus had the power to heal, and that's where they wanted to be. And so they carried their friend on a stretcher, uh, one of them on each corner, bringing him along. Now, these guys were not able to get into the house because, of course, it was too crowded to be able to get in. And so instead of just, you know, going away or staying outside, they climb up onto, like, imagine this. Four guys getting up onto a roof. They have their friend on a stretcher. They start peeling back the roof and they lower this friend down into the center of the room right in front of Jesus. Their faith could be seen. I guess is what we see in verses 18 and 19. It says, Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus on a mat. And tried to take him, like, sorry, tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way into the house because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on a mat, uh, threw the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And then in verse 20, it actually tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And so the faith of these men, it could be seen. That's an important and powerful point that we have to understand and, and look at. Like their, their bold determination of taking action on behalf of their friend, recognizing that Jesus was able to heal them. They weren't satisfied to just watch. They weren't satisfied to just try to bring their friend uh, to, the, to the house. They needed to get him inside. There was something lacking in faith if it cannot be seen, if it cannot be witnessed. And in this account, the emphasis is on the faith of the friends of the paralyzed man. And we need to have faith that is for more than just our own needs, but also for the needs of those whom we love and we we desire to see good things for. Needs that we would move in the direction of in order to have Jesus meet them. This is why we pray for people. This is why we, uh, yeah, we just constantly take people and their needs to the Lord. And so you and I cannot see anyone's faith. However, like you, you can't actually physically see someone's faith, but you can see the evidence of the person's faith. In James chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, it says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone, uh, but someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith with works. And, and so the, the idea there is, is like, look, I got faith. You just don't see it. And, and what James is saying there, and this is James, the brother of Jesus. And he's saying, listen, you, you show me your faith without works. You're not going to be able to show me. It can't be seen. But I'll show you my faith 
with works. So it's not that works gets us saved or any of that kind of stuff, but it is the evidence of faith. So if I say I believe in Jesus, then there should be these things going on in my life, this fruit from that faith that pushes me towards the things of Jesus. And so Jesus can see our faith. He can see your faith right here, right now. He knows how much faith you have. And in dealing with the failure of the disciples to rid a boy of a demon, Jesus actually says to them, he says in Matthew 17, verse 20, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you had the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible for you. It doesn't take much faith to move mountains. You know why? Because faith doesn't move mountains, God does. So we're placing faith not in faith, but in the one in whom we should have faith in. So it's not faith in faith. I don't, it's not about me having enough faith in my faith. It's about faith in Christ. It only takes a little bit of faith to go to a big God who has the power to move a mountain. Now these four men had all the faith they needed. They just simply used their faith they had to bring their friend to Jesus who had the power to heal his body. This is an incredible story. Jesus saw the faith in their hearts. Everyone else saw the faith by how they exercised it in bringing their friend to Jesus. And Jesus is looking into your and my hearts now. And he sees our faith. And he sees whether we exercise the faith that we have or not. And this proved the determination of the friends of the paralytic. They counted on Jesus to heal their friend. Because it sure would have been a lot harder to bring him back up through the roof than lowering him down. And so their, their belief was that Jesus was going to heal them. It truly testifies to the friendship they had. These friends were unwilling to allow any hurdle to prevent them from getting their friend to Jesus. Which takes us kind of to the second part of verse 20, right? Like we actually did 18, 19, and 20 here. Uh, the second part of verse 20, Jesus responds to this paralytic, and, and it's an interesting image here because Jesus responds to this paralytic not on the basis of his paralysis. He actually looks at him and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. But he didn't come to have his sins forgiven. He came to have his body healed, didn't he? And Jesus looks into his heart as well, and, and Jesus sees the greater need. Jesus didn't begin by healing the man of paralysis because he had a greater need. Sin, let's understand this, sin is worse than sickness. Sin is worse than sickness. As a matter of fact, like sickness, I mean, you, you can deal with that. This guy could have lived a long life being paralyzed, presumably. But the scripture actually tells us, as it relates to sin, like the wages of sin is death. Sin is worse than sickness. And so Jesus is offering his primary ministry, the forgiveness of sins. The paralyzed man and his friends came for physical healing, but what they needed was healing from sin. And Jesus is making an incredibly massive claim here. A massive claim, like for us, like maybe we've heard this kind of stuff before. Yeah, Jesus forgives sin, that kind of thing. But back then, you have to remember that this would have been considered blasphemy. As a matter of fact, in verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
began thinking among themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so we have to remember that, that no one in the room would have imagined that Jesus would have said this. The Old Testament, a priest in the sanctuary could communicate God's forgiveness when atoning the sacrifice that was made. But Leviticus simply says that the worshiper confessed the sin, made the sacrifice, and the sin was forgiven. Leviticus 4.26, he shall burn the fat on the altar and the burned fat of the fellowship offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's, for the leader's sin and he will be forgiven. And so that's the practice that was taking place, right? There was a sacrifice and, and, and there would be confession and then there would be forgiveness. But it was God who forgave. This is the understanding for the Pharisees, for the scribes, for all of Israel. It was God who forgave. Psalm 32, blesses the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blesses the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so God is the only one who can forgive. So when Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven, they're hearing blasphemy because, again, only God could, could, could forgive sin. The priest could only communicate the good word to the genuine penitent after he saw this act of contrition, this sacrifice, and the restoration of health. At other times, the prophet would come and announce to the sinner that God had put away sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken your sin. You are not going to die. But here, Jesus, seeing their faith, announces that the man's sins are forgiven before he was healed, before he even offered a sacrifice in the temple, before he had done anything. And if we can assume that in this account, he didn't even say anything else. And so you have this murmur going on. Because what Jesus effectively did here was say that he is God. To say that he can forgive sins is to say that he is God. And, and so then you have this murmuring. And, and in verse 22 to 23, we read that Jesus knew that what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So the question here is, which is easier to say, right? You are forgiven. Well, your sins are forgiven. That's actually the easier thing to say. And you may ask yourself, well, why, considering that it was considered blasphemous? Well, because nobody can tell if it's true. Like, there's no evidence of it. You know, it's, it's a statement. And so, could it be considered blasphemous? Sure, it could be considered blasphemous. Only God could forgive sin. And so for Jesus to say it, and everybody's hearing it, and, and the scribes and the Pharisees are kind of thinking to themselves, like, what is this blasphemy? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, okay, so let's think about this. Which is easier, to say your, your sins are forgiven or to say you're healed? Take up your mat and walk. Well, the reality is that nobody can see whether or not your sins are forgiven. But, and so anyone could say it. You would never see the evidence of that. You would never see whether or not it's true. But if someone 
if you told someone who was paralyzed to get up and walk, you could see if it was true or not. And so Jesus is telling these religious leaders that they shouldn't be condemning something that they couldn't see if they knew whether, if they didn't know whether or not it was true. There was no way for them to tell if it was just words or fact. They couldn't tell if he really had the power to forgive sins. And so now to let them know that he had the power to forgive sins, right? Because that's the purpose of the healing. So that they will know that he has the power to forgive sins. Jesus says, get up and walk. Now, Jesus often referred to himself as, uh, as the Son of Man. It is a, a moniker, it is a title that he has. He is Son of Man, he is Son of God. And the idea was not of a perfect man or the ideal man or even the common man. Instead, what Jesus is referring to here is actually back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, where he's talking about the coming King of glory, coming to judge the world. And so he has the title of the Son of Man. So Jesus uses this title often because in his day, it was a messianic title, free from political and nationalistic sentiment. Jesus could have more commonly referred to himself as king or Christ. But those titles have this messianic um, imagery that the people of the day would have seen him as a military and political leader versus this spiritual healer. And so they would have seen him as the one who would defeat the Romans and miss the message that he was actually coming with. There's a theologian by the name of, um, the last name is Robertson. He says, talking about the Son of Man, he says, Christ's favorite designation of himself as claimed to be the Messiah in terms of, uh, in terms that could not be easily attacked. And so he's proclaiming himself as Messiah without the ease of being attacked uh, for being, calling himself like Messiah. And so immediately he arose, and I just want you to imagine the tension here in terms of like this paralytic immediately rises, healed. I just want you to imagine the tension. The scribes were tense because Jesus challenged them, and he said that he would demonstrate that he was the Son of God. He had the power to forgive sins to suggest that he is, in fact, God. The paralyzed man was tense because, well, he had to wonder what was really going to happen here, what was going to take place. The crowd was tense because they sensed the tension of everybody else. The owner of the house was likely tense because he was wondering how much, you know, how much it's going to cost to repair my roof. And the four friends were likely tense because they were worried for their friend. But the only one in the room who wasn't was Jesus. Because he had this perfect peace when he said, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Take up your mat, and walk, and go home. At those words, immediately he arose. Jesus' power to heal was proven. That power to heal was the evidence of his authority over sin, to forgive sin. And it was immediately vindicated. Now just imagine if Jesus would have failed. Well, his entire ministry would have just fallen apart, right? The crowd would slowly make their way out of the house. The scribes would smile and say, he can't heal or forgive. The four men would struggle to pull their paralyzed friend out of this home and, and the misery that they would be experiencing at this point. But he didn't fail. And he couldn't fail. Because all he needed to do was heal this man was his word. Like that's all he needed to do is just express his word. There's this wonderful healing power in the word of Jesus. 
in the promises of Jesus for those who come to him in faith. This man came to Jesus in faith, and even if it was kind of on the wings of the faith of his friends as well. And what we find as a result of this healing that proves his authority to forgive sins, his absolute authority to forgive sins, all sins can be forgiven through Jesus. In verse 26, it says, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. One of the questions I have to ask of the text, because it doesn't tell us, is were the Pharisees and teachers of the law equally amazed and praising God? Like, I wonder. I, I don't know, but I wonder. Because in this moment, they're experiencing something brand new. The entire story is a detailed account of Jesus proving to those who would witness and hear of this account that he has the power to and is willing to forgive sins. So what's the obstacle in your life from experiencing Jesus in your life? This man couldn't walk. His friends overcame the obstacles of the crowd by going up onto the roof. The obstacle of the roof by pulling back the layers of the roof. The obstacle of the height by lowering their friend down. What is your obstacle in experiencing and coming to Jesus? Is it a habit? Is it a secret sin? Is it um, a person in the church you don't like? Is it, is it your love for the world or the things of the world? Like, Do you feel like you're on the outside looking in and you're trying to figure out a way in? I want you to just think about what it would look like to surrender that obstacle to Jesus and that you're just going to press in and, and that your faith in him is going to cause action in your life to move towards him. That's what it does. Our faith, the action of our faith, moves us towards Jesus and towards one another. Surrender that obstacle to Jesus so that you can experience his power in your life. And, and the other thing that goes along with it is like, make a difference in someone else's life. This paralyzed man needed help to come to Jesus. He couldn't do it on his own. And so his friends helped him get there. Like, that's a friend. You see, like Jesus has the power to forgive sin. He has the power to heal. Uh, in this particular account, his healing was the evidence of his power to forgive sin. And so Jesus is able to forgive anything. And sometimes what I find is that what we need is to overcome the hurdles in our lives and coming to Jesus to say, okay, I need to, I need to surrender these things. And the action of my faith is that I'm going to move towards Jesus. And that can look in a variety of ways. Maybe you just need to start attending uh, a congregation, the church more frequently. Maybe you need to get involved in a small group. Maybe you need to start serving. Maybe you need to um, just even just tell people that you are a believer. Like whatever it is, your action needs to lead and be the evidence of your faith. Maybe you need to pray more. Maybe you need to get into your Bible more frequently. You know, there's a friend of mine in our congregation who says, like, I love what he, he's about. He says, like, read a chapter a day for the rest of your life. That's fantastic. But maybe you can make a difference in someone else's life too. Like, the, the, the mission of our church or the, the purpose of our church is to help those far from God come to know life in Christ. Doesn't that sound like what these friends did? They helped bring their friend to Jesus so that he could find life in him. 
so you can make a difference in someone else's life. This paralyzed man needed help to come to Jesus. And so who are the people that are paralyzed in your spheres of influence that need your help to come to Jesus? And then just start praying about what it looks like to help them get there. My hope and prayer for you is that in this story, you will see that Jesus is proclaiming something significant about himself to the people in the room, specifically to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's proclaiming that he is actually God. And then he forgives the sins of a man who didn't even ask for the forgiveness of his sins. He came there for one thing. He got something better. That's our God. We come to him with one thing, and we get the ultimate thing in our life resolved. Get there for yourself. Surrender whatever obstacles you have, whatever hurdles you have, and get to Jesus. And help someone else get there too. This is an incredible story of friendship, of forgiveness, of, of authority. I love this message because... Again, Jesus just meets our ultimate needs. So my encouragement to you is let him meet your needs and help other people find their needs met in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that you will bring to mind people that we need to be a part of uh, in life, like lives that we need to be moving into to be able to help them come to find you. And so, Lord God, that we would be friends that would help people find you. Lord, what, a, what an incredible mission you have given us in our world. And Lord, whatever obstacles we are experiencing in coming to you, and Jesus, I pray that we would be a people that would surrender those obstacles and that the activity of our faith, which is intended to move us closer to you, would be something that we would press into. And so, Lord God, whatever those steps are, maybe we need to pray. Maybe we need to be reading our scriptures more. Maybe we need to get involved uh, in, in some kind of ministry. Maybe we need to get involved in a, in a small group some, of some kind. Maybe we need to just start attending church again. Or maybe we just need to start getting back to a higher level of frequency in attending. Whatever it is, Lord, that you would be the one who helps us to overcome these hurdles to be able to come to you. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.